Are we recording? <laughs> oh yeah! It's like <laughs> a year from now. <laughs> Macho. Oh man, that's Vincy. I like that my kids know that I'm healthy and strong and fit, and that their mom is healthy and strong and fit. Like, okay, I can still get better without having to do a max effort every single day. Smashing yourself on the roller for uh, an hour, right? you're good by the next day as long as you had a sandwich and a net. Okay, today's episode we're going to discuss a topic called concurrent exercise training. For anyone that doesn't know what that means, it very simply it just means you're combining the pursuit of endurance training or getting better uh, in an endurance performance, as well as trying to simultaneously get better at strength training or gain uh, muscle mass size. And you're doing that either in in one session or you're doing that in multiple sessions throughout the span of a week. So one session means that you know you do strength training and then you do some endurance training in the same session, say Monday, or versus the other one is you do strength training on Monday and then you do endurance training only on Tuesday. These are the types of layouts. And if people train twice a day, then you might do strength training in the morning, endurance training in the afternoon, or, or you might do it all, all the time. Depends on whatever type of program you're following. So uh, there's this article that uh, we're going to really just base our whole discussion off of because it's a pretty good summary of the of the content and the literature. Uh, it's called Concurrent Exercise Training, Do Opposites Distract? Uh, from Coffee and Holly. And I guess we can just kind of post this in the notes if anyone wants to read it. But we'll just take it from the first part. So the definition is what I just gave you of what concurrent training is. One thing I really like, because I've always thought this, uh, even when I talk to other coaches outside of CrossFit, I've thought this, is that, uh, that what the problem they mention is that the simul, and this is a uh, quote from them, the simultaneous development of muscular endurance and strength power arguably represents the highest complexity in exercise prescription. And I just think that's completely true. Like if you, if I, like I have, I have people who I work with that are, that are just runners. It's very easy uh, to write training for them in comparison uh, and then vice versa you have people who just want to gain muscle mass or want to get want to get stronger that's also a more like a much easier thing to work with uh, when you have people that want to compete and cross and want to be as good as they can that's much more challenging it's very challenging to make them better and to make them really good over the long term but it's also really challenging to understand why things work and what is actually working and then how, how to prioritize things and what to prioritize and how much is enough in any one area and how much to not distract from another area and yada, yada, yada. It's a, yeah, it's a lot to it. Just that little part first, that problem. Does that seem like the right problem that concurrent training is the way we discuss it or we think of it? And that being mostly for people that want to compete in CrossFit is extremely challenging. But it's also why it's really interesting, right? Yeah, th- I wouldn't say it's necessarily easy for someone who is a like a one style athlete, but it's not nearly as complex. It's simple because you have one goal. That's it. Yeah. And in the modes are you essentially have one or a couple. You're not you don't have this multifaceted sport because you're literally doing a monostructural sport. If yeah. you're a, a distance runner, for example. Yeah, and most often, especially if you get towards the higher levels of the sport, right, the body frames usually converge to a certain look or a certain, they have certain traits. You get to the highest level in weightlifting, and these people don't have issues with squatting depth. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> right? They don't have issues with that. Or they don't have issues with keeping their heels down in a squat because they're, they're, the way their joints move is just great. Or, you know, you get to a point of uh, the, hot, the, fat, the best marathon runners, you don't have, you're not going to have issues with some mass in their lower body and having to issue with that because they're not going to get to that point if they have that. But in CrossFit, there's you can have very different body frames rise to the top of the sport with all these different problems, and it's also it's just that's also what makes it really interesting. Okay, so some of the early evidence for, I guess, and sorry to back up. One of the most common topics discussed with concurrent training, which we just which we just mentioned, is how to actually do like how to make the best of that situation. The problem with it is is something termed the interference effect, or what they call the interference effect. And this is first, as it states here in the article, I believe it was first mentioned by Hickson in 1980. And the quote here is, Hickson termed the impaired strength gains with concurrent strength and endurance training, the interference effect. Basically, they just saw people were, they had a, it's it's what you would expect. As you worked on a lot of endurance training, there was some reduction in the ability to gain muscle mass or strength. And I'm assuming most of these studies are literally just done on cycle ergometers, right and like bicep curls and leg extensions but it's it's good they do it like that because these are really really low level things and they've reduced the variables and if you're not going to gain muscle mass that way you're probably not going to gain it in a more complex format either they're, and, and more often than not they're working with beginners which has a really important a really compo- important context to add to that as we get going and then so uh, they go on another great paragraph here so it says uh, even when the interference effect has been unclear, so basically they do studies where there's endurance and strength training simultaneously in concurrent training, and there doesn't seem to be any issues. So it says, even when the interference effect is unclear, there, there can, this can typically be attributed to low volume and frequency of training. So it's, it's like, look, these people that are getting better at all these things moving along, it's like, yeah, but they don't actually train that much. So, but they are getting better. They're getting better slowly. But one of the big issues with the endurance training side of the interference effect is it's very much frequency and volume contingent. So like if you have a power lifter who does, goes for a walk twice a week, it's probably not a problem. If you have a power lifter who runs 10 kilometers every morning, <laughs> they're, not they're, they're, not they're, they're not a power lifter. They're just not going to be a power lifter. No. There's no way. Like that's the, that's one of the main sides of it, right? It's, it's, it, it's not just doing it. It's the amount and frequency with which you do it. Any comments on that part? That's that was my only one. Yeah. The, the one thing I like about this, uh, this this type of research is that it a lot of it confirms what I thought when I read. That's why we like it. I was like, this is kind of, I was like, this is cool. Like, I, I, I like coming across information like that where you go, okay, I'm not losing my mind. Yeah. Like, this is actually correct. And something else we also know is like the type of exercise you're doing. So let's just, again, just take the beginner solution. If you have beginners doing wanting to get better at squatting strength and endurance or leg endurance, which is a common thing I would want to do, you would have them do squatting and erg work. So skiing, biking, rowing versus having them do like squatting and lots of running because the mode of the endurance training also affects it. And this is also where, this is where it gets a little interesting, right? Because a part of the interference effect is thought to be molecular. And we don't need to really, which we usually say, we don't really need to get into it, but the two sides of the coin is for endurance adaptations really quickly, you just think of this thing called PGC1-alpha. And that's like 
more often than not, that's the that's the signal transduction to go. Okay, you know, we want to increase mitochondrial density. We want to increase angiogenesis. The other side, is the resistance training is the mTOR pathway. It's like okay, we want to we want to basically assemble more proteins, gain muscle mass, and strength. That's the two sides of it. So the interference effect could be like you know you do too much of the endurance side, which kind of kiboshes the ability of the mTOR pathway to do its job and gain strength and mass. But it doesn't seem to be as big of a deal the other way. If you're trying to, you know, do the PGC pathway of endurance, it doesn't seem to be as big of a deal if you do a lot of squatting, if that's your goal. Did I have that about right? Yep. I don't know if you want to get into this, but like while you're saying all this stuff, I was, I'm thinking of Henshaw and how he'll be like, oh, Matt PR'd his snatch because he was running more or whatever. Um, obviously it wasn't the more running that necessarily did it to him, but I just think of that because people might use that as a argument against what, what you're saying here. Cause they'll go, well, if Matt, someone like Matt Frazier can PR his snatch by running more, how come I can't or something along those lines? What do you feel, like think about that or as far as an argument against it or how would you explain it to them? Um, it'd be like the same thing I said at one of our first athlete camps. Like the reason Matt Frazier got better at weightlifting when he joined CrossFit is because he's not a good weightlifter. That's why. Like he's a good weightlifter for CrossFit. He's not a good weightlifter, right? If you're a great weightlifter, you're not going in CrossFit as a male. No chance. You can't survive. You would go into CrossFit and get weaker, right? That's just the nature of Mm -hmm. it. Because you don't have guys that are 80 kilos, like snatching 130, 135, 140 going into CrossFit. You'd have guys that are, what, 80 kilos snatching, what, 170? One, oh, more than that. <laughs> or 180? Wait, wait, yeah, way more right? than that. Like, they're, they're closing in on like close to 400 pounds. So, yeah, that's a big difference, right? Matt's snatching over 300, which is a, a fantastic number, and I could never do that. But he's not anywhere close to what someone his size can do. Right. So it's just the whole point of it is that like the genetics of someone like Matt obviously predisposes him to being able to adapt to endurance training clearly. Right. Because if you take the best weightlifters in the world, they're not going to adapt to endurance training like that at all. That's why they're the best weightlifters. And it's the same thing with Elliot Kipchoge. Like he's not going to adapt to strength training ever. Even if you probably started from <laughs> from the beginning. He probably wasn't going to because he's so gifted in one side of things it's not going to really happen so if you put him if you put someone like matt into an endurance environment and he keeps working on strength training it probably still has like the the appropriate signal or the appropriate adap- um, adaptive process for him right but the other thing of it too when you think about taking out something and putting running in that's what's not discussed is like he maybe he didn't get better because he was running maybe he got better because he was doing less something else like maybe he was doing less squatting in other formats um, to allow for more running, and that was enough for him to make his legs feel like more recovered day to day, so he could lift more. Who knows? But like when when people say that, like they're talking about what, like Matt Matt snatched what one pound more, two pounds more. Like they said, like he PR. It's like okay, well it's like one pound, two pounds maybe. Okay, that's cool. And then did he, did he do it again? Well, no. Okay. <laughs> well. <laughs> Like, it's just such a random statement, right? And it's obviously an N equals one thing. So that's my little rant on that, in my opinion. Come at me. <laughs> okay, so um, 
So again, a lot of what we've been talking about is in terms of how endurance training can affect strength gain. And one, uh, we'll just read from a couple parts here, I will. Uh, in contrast to the impaired strength development when endurance training is undertaken simultaneously with res resistance training, there's potential for combined strength and endurance training to amplify. So basically, for some people, especially like think of like someone who's, a who's an avid runner or cyclist who's really weak or has no experience with strength training, if they start doing strength training or getting some form of muscular strength, it's probably going to help them a lot. And the, one of the studies they cite is how a group, they combined heavy resistance workouts, so three sessions per week, and heavy, and I'm assuming massive quotations, <laughs> <laughs> combined heavy resistance workouts, three sessions per week for 10 weeks with the normal <clears throat> endurance training regimens of trained runners, and that's a keyword, trained runners and cyclists who are already at a steady state level of endurance performance. Despite no increase in maximal oxygen uptake, there was a clear benefit to adding strength training to endurance training in both the short-term running and cycling capacity as well as long-term endurance cycling. So it, and another way you could think that is like that's going to that there's somewhere in there it's going to affect in terms it's going to affect either their critical power speed or it's going to correct or it's going to affect their durability in terms of the their their ability to maintain that critical power over time in cycling exercise. It's somehow improving the economy of the effort, which is great. Any comments on that? Cuz by now we should just talk about the reverse of that which we just discussed, right? So what they're saying here is that like at basically I'm assuming it's people who don't strength train you make them stronger because they're trained cyclists and runners it helps them so some people would go okay well you know I want to be a better runner I've been in CrossFit forever I need to make sure I do strength training and that basically is me and I can tell you wholeheartedly you definitely do not because most of you are just probably going to be way stronger than you ever need to be uh, to be a distance runner the one thing you're not good at is running uh, and you're really not good at it and you need to spend a lot of time doing it and what we probably th and we, I say we as a collective like people who probably listen to this podcast or people who are in this room or in Connecticut in a room what we think of strength training is not what like endurance athletes think of strength training right like not even at all like you see Kip like yeah <laughs> like I love seeing the videos of Elliot Kip just doing strength training it's like step ups onto like a six inch box <laughs> and like his little single leg jumps and shit but it doesn't matter right like anything to make him a little bit stronger is going to be helpful but like they're not maxing out snatches and cleaning jerks and trap bar deadlift until their nose bleeds like that's not what's happening in their in their strength training right but they're, they're doing enough to support yeah they're running uh, without interfering with the ability to, for them to run as yeah. much as they need to run. Yeah. But also, it's, I, I think, and I'd love to see, like, studies on it, of some, like, a, an endurance athlete who does regular strength training, quote-unquote regular strength training, to support their endurance endeavor, whether it be running, cycling, skiing, whatever it is, and what their incidence of injury is versus someone who doesn't do any at all. Because that's going to be part of it too. You know what I mean? Not only is it going to, like you said, help with the economy of their activity, but it's probably going to stave off potential injury, I would assume. Yeah, that's one of the things that you really want to do with running anyway, right? Or any type of endurance training as an additive effect is like, do no harm to me. I'm a great cyclist, but what can I do to make sure I can keep training? I can keep training my cycling really high for years on end because mm -hmm. that's what I need to do. How can other my other training I'm doing add to that? Like how can I? How can how can it basically be like a protect like an insurance policy mm -hmm. for me? When I mean, you're thinking about those athletes, yeah, yeah. There's a there's another really good part here, which again is pretty obvious to anybody who's been around training. 
quoting here from the paper, other studies have compared molecular responses of combined endurance and resistance exercise versus single mode exercise. So that's, again, concurrent training versus just endurance or just strength training and show similar or enhanced signaling of gene expression with concurrent exercise in moderately trained or recreationally active individuals. So it's just uh, what all you're getting there is just that people who are beginners will adapt to basically anything. And one of the, one of the lines they have later in the paper, again to quote, um, compared to trained athletes, untrained individuals have a greater capacity to activate the molecular machinery in the muscle in response to contractile activity because any overload stimulus induces large perturbations to cellular homeostasis regardless of the mode of exercise. So again, that's just, that, that's exactly what you would see in beginners, right? They come in one day, they just, you know, do whatever deadlifting, and they come in the next day and they just kill themselves on burpees and step-ups, and the next day they do lunges and this, and they come back like 10 days later and they PR their deadlifts. It's like, <laughs> Right? They, they just do these types of random workouts. They just keep getting better and better and better and better and better, right? Now, that's still not the way I would recommend you do it, but you're still going to get better at doing it, And but, which is very clear also in, in that format is that that stops. Like, that stops working quickly. In the, in the grand scheme of things, quickly, like, it might seem you're getting better for a long time, but that's only a year or two, yeah. and then that stops working. Usually people come here after two years. It's a very... Right, it's a very common thing. <clears throat> I've stopped getting um, better. I want to get better. Yeah, and like, and there's a great graph in here, uh, Figure Three. It's just a great. It's a great graph. It just has like a. It's called a hypothetical time course of adaptation, and it just goes like, basically, think of it. You're getting more and more advanced. You move from an untrained to moderately trained to highly trained state. A really good sentence from that uh, they have in the description is that the change in phenotype. So basically, being highly trained resistance athlete, so highly trained weightlifter, powerlifter, or versus highly trained endurance athlete, like, you know, in like a Tour de France cyclist, some, some really good marathon runner, Ironman athlete. So the change in phenotype coincides with the need for greater training loads to disrupt the homeostasis and promote further adaptation, which results in impaired responses to concurrent training compared with single mode training. So the farther along you go, towards the trained state in any one of those modes, the more of the interference effect you're going to get to the opposite. So the more and more and more and more elite you become as an Ironman athlete, <laughs> the worse and worse and worse and worse you're go it's going to make you at resistance training. And then vice versa, if you, if you push and push and push to be the best weightlifter, it will impact you to a point of your ability to even uh, adapt to endurance training because it's just going to take forever to get out of that point because you're so highly trained in that one area. And what they're saying then also is that the larger and larger stimulus required to push you farther along, right? Which is where people would see that as you get to a peak in performance and go, I can't get any better. There's nothing I can do here. Time to get the needles. That's <laughs> 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 oh, fucking great. <laughs> yeah, another really important factor and again, please cut me off here if you want to say something because I'm just going to keep rambling. I have my notes. Uh, another very important factor along that same line we just said as you get in terms of you get towards a highly trained state is the training history of the individual. And a note they make here, perhaps the primary factor determining the molecular profiles generated by concurrent exercise are the training status of the subjects and the inter-individual responses. So 
and I'll just read further on here. These are early signaling responses to divergent exercise stimuli in skeletal muscle from well-trained humans clearly demonstrate that prior training history alters the exercise-specific signaling responses involved in single-mode adaptations to training and that a degree of response plasticity is conserved at opposite ends of the endurance hypertrophic adaptation continuum. So again, your training history, how advanced you are in any one area, if you were a single mode athlete, is going to have a big impact on the way you adapt to the training stimulus and how much that training stimulus is going to affect your overall uh, physiology. Uh, so that one of the two points up here, that's what they're saying in terms of the molecular profile. So again, you're an endurance athlete, like again, you start doing some resistance training, you start getting some mTOR pathway signaling. How much of an effect is that going to have? Like, is that going to really, you know, you show up to the, you, you start doing squats twice a week. Are you going to start looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger out there on the course? I don't think so. And then vice versa. Like you, you're a power lifter and you, you, you start rowing five minutes in your warm up each day. Like, it's like, yeah, okay. You're still terrible. <laughs> it's basically like trying to break through a brick wall to get some adaptation in there. And in the last part of it, which is really good. I haven't read the study yet that they sent me is the inter-individual responses, which is really fascinating. There was a good study, I can't believe, actually it was the latest excerpt that John Keeley wrote. It was a study he linked, I asked him for it on Twitter, and actually the author of the book sent it to me. And it's about these Australian twin studies. And they, they, had, these, they had these individuals basically follow, I think it was like, a th I'm, I'm trying to remember from reading just the abstract that I had access to, uh, I believe it was like three months of training that they did for these uh, identical twins and a bunch of different identical twins. They'd have them do three months of just resistance training, three months washout period, so three months of just debauchery, I suppose, <laughs> and then three months of endurance training. And I think it's they're doing three t three sessions a week of either one. And again, these are identical twins because what they're trying to see is how much of the adaptation response to identical training in identical twins is obviously genetically determined. And what they find is that it's not it's it's very much not just genetics, right? And which which Keeley is very big on in his writing is the background environmental stress and the background the way the person perceives the stress and the background of the way the person involves and engages themselves in the training, they enjoy it, has a lot to play in the in the adaptive process, which is completely undiscussed. Completely. And that's the point of this study is to go okay, you have these people who are almost the same people doing the exact same training and you're not getting the same outcomes, right? That's a, that's a very important thing. So now you have two different people doing the same training. Do you think you're going to get the same outcomes? No, <laughs> right? Because it's, it's not just genetics and it's not just the variables that determine the, ad, the adaptive response. So even when we're talking about these two main pathways in terms of PGC and mTOR, it's not just that simple, right? Like you, we could just sit here and talk with the mechanistic reasons of why, why doing endurance training doesn't work with strength training. And you could be totally right because you can make mechanistic arguments. But the problem with those types of arguments, they fail and fall flat on their face in the real world when you just look out into our gym and see people getting better at both sides of the spectrum at the same time and doing it year after year after year, right? So then you go, huh, maybe that isn't everything, right? But it is part of it, right? It is part of it for sure. Because there's too much science, too much research to support that. What is it? it would that be because no no one in our gym is is on either end of the the, the bell curve? You like, are. You are. <laughs> <laughs> How much do you enjoy trying to run? 
Man, I'm getting beat today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Starts it off with, can you even whisper, bro? To like, uh, how do you like being fat and can't run? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, no, well, Jason would probably be the most one-sided of anyone here in terms of his. But the thing is, not even really, because you were good at CrossFit when you tried to do it, right? You beat us in 2018 Open. I still don't know how that Smashed happened. Smashed us. I thought about that the other day when I saw him coming out of the office. I'm like, dude, this guy's getting back in the game. He's going to beat us in the Open again this year if we all did it. <laughs> you see him drive the bar off the rack about six times. <laughs> Ding! <laughs> the J-clips. <laughs> and then he had to drop the plates off himself because he got pinned on the bench. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, back to what we're talking about. So again, like I was saying, you can make mechanistic arguments and talk about it, and you go, "All right, this seems makes a lot of sense and things you need to consider." But again, this is why it's a great paper. Towards the end of the paper, they have a summary section, and it's very good. Here's a quote from it that says, "Recommendations to individuals to undertake divergent exercise modes on different days to avoid adaptive interference with concurrent training is oversimplistic." and not representative of the real-world scenarios under which athletes train. The demands and management of professional athletes often restricts the optimal timing for different exercise modes within a periodized program. So that's a huge, a very, a very important caveat, right? Because they go, okay, we can make these mechanistic arguments and try to make sense of things of what's happening, but in reality, in practice, it, you, you can't really do that with people. And it should, and it's also what, what when I when I read that I just think of training for the sport aspect of it, right? Because you go, imagine you only took it in that way, and you're like, okay, we need to separate this so we get maximal adaptation of strength and power, and we get maximal adaptation of endurance. And you go, well, what's the value of having uh, some athlete, you know, do double unders before they do uh, ring muscle ups per minute for 20 minutes? You're doing the ring muscle up, and you think of it as like a strength exercise. Why are you doing double unders before it? It's like, well, because you want to introduce this athlete to the sporting aspect of the ring muscle-up because it's not just ring muscle-ups. It's you have to be tired and do ring muscle-ups. And then you have to do it over and over and over. So the ring muscle-up itself becomes an endurance exercise. So, like, you're trying to add the bring the person towards the sporting aspect of CrossFit. And that, 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 that's a completely different argument for why you would do that than this type of discussion, right? You're adding variables rather than stripping them away. Like yeah. they do in a study like this to yeah. prove the mechanism. Yeah, it's just a layer that you would consider, right? You don't, you wouldn't write the entire training program based on these principles, because it wouldn't make a lot of sense. But you do consider them, and I consider them for sure. And when I write people's training, but that's a really good caveat, which is it's great to see researchers point that out because they're like, listen, this is not the real world, and this is what happens. So you need to take this with a grain of salt. And then they, and then they, they add another great thing at the end here, where it says. Are we guilty of overlooking the obvious or simply making the issue more complicated than it is? For example, it is possible that acute residual fatigue from the previous exercise session and or chronic fatigue due to, due to undertaking a greater total workload to match adaptive responses of single mode training are generating the interference effect. So basically is it that because concurrent training you have an ability to do way more training in general, is that the problem? because there's just so much more recovery demand from doing it than if you do run, rest, run, rest, like I do. And I have a really good, I'm really good at gauging my fatigue from running because I, I just gauge it by how I feel on running because I'm very familiar with it versus weightlifting, right? You would do, I'm sure you would do weightlifting and go, man, it's, 
like my 80% doesn't feel like 80% today, I probably I probably need to slow it down here for a, a week or a few days or whatever and get back on track. Whereas in CrossFit, it's it's kind of like there's there's like how often would you train and go, man, I feel super fresh today. <laughs> you're like, no, yeah. especially if you're really good at it, right? Like you're, it's, you just train so much. Like how much can you recover from? And that's a really important thing to um to, to, to manage, right? You're trying to manage the overall fatigue of the athlete as well as trying to like design sound training programs that try to consider the concurrent effects of uh, resistance and endurance training and the potential interference effect on a molecular basis. You tr- like, I try to consider that, but there's only so much you can actually do with, without by then just taking the program from being an effective program for these people to something that's completely devoid of, of, uh, of relevance. Right, and that's not what you want to do. But I think it's also important to note that the the importance of separating out the training during certain periods of of the year, depending on the athlete and what they need to what they need to improve on the most. For example, if somebody's improved their aerobic capacity, then separating that from their strength training, at least during periods of the year, is going to be super beneficial for them. A strike in the column for their argument in the paper, right? Yeah. However, because they're probably going to get the most amount of benefit out of that, they're going to get better at running if they're running by itself instead of doing running with mixed modal CrossFit stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They just they need to run more and longer to get better at doing that. They need to be become a better rower. They need to do rowing on its own. Does it mean they just do it on their own, uh, rowing on its own all the time? No, it's going to be mixed in with the sport because it has to be contextual to the sport and the goals that they have. But in order to see true adaptation and change, a lot of those people have to parse that out of their training and do it in isolation. And Tom mentioned that earlier before we started recording and i don't know if you want to ask your specific question now tom but about how how do you do that as a coach with an athlete how do you separate that out do you do doubles do you not do doubles when do you do them right and i don't know if that's yeah, kind of along I mean, the I didn't have lines what your question was tom more but. specific than that i was just curious about either yours or michael's uh, thought process or jason if you have any athletes that do doubles how do you go about laying it out what do you always go strength in the morning or before endurance or do you do the opposite sometimes is there criteria for that that you consider it's kind of a broad question it's difficult to answer because i know it is individual but well i I look at because we we still have the other the, the polarized training the kind of idea that underpins how i write training so if someone's maxed out on how much intense stuff they're doing then weightlifting will always be intense so they're not going to do more of that so they're going to end up doing something that's less intense in the context of endurance training versus strength training everyone's already strong enough in my opinion that i work with that is doing doubles they don't need to get stronger they need to be more enduring in crossfit so that's that limits what they're essentially doing for me, for anyone I write doubles for, I mean, there's a few factors that come into play in terms of how I organize it. One, the, in the primary one being the amount of time they have to train at what time of day. So, for example, typically people will have less time in the morning to train than they will in the afternoon because they got to get up, get their training in, and get to work, whereas when work is over, they have the entire evening to train. So typically, <clears throat> for those people, a an endurance session, a straight-up monostructural or mixed uh, cyclical session in the morning is more advantageous for them 
because it doesn't take as much time, as much warm up time, as much prep time, and then they can train in the evening when they have more time if they need to do strength work, uh, whatever that session looks like. And then another thing I consider is preference. What like what do they like doing first thing in the morning? Because then obviously their motivation, you want their motivation to be high for or as high as possible for every training session that they go into. And if they really like lifting weights in the morning, then I'll do weightlifting in the morning and then the endurance stuff in the evening. To Jason's point, a lot of those athletes that are doing doubles though, most likely are advanced enough that they probably don't need to be doing like a straight up strength session. Any, anyone that I do doubles for, they need they, they need the aerobic work parsed out and on its own because that's like the, the limiting factor for them. And the other stuff is, you know, either maintenance or, or you know, kind of touches. I'm just thinking of one client, for example, that I had a conversation with today, who's really good at the sport, tons of high skill, great capacity, but just lacks the endurance. And so that, that bleeds into like high rep gymnastics stuff. So he needs to do a lot of endurance work to improve his overall oxygen delivery. But the other stuff he doesn't really need to do a ton of. So, <clears throat> you know, the strength maintenance stuff, the skill stuff, you can combine that stuff in the, in the afternoon or in the evening or in the morning if he prefers to do that. Those are the two, two things I really take into consideration. Time they have in the morning, and that'll dictate kind of what training session gets slotted where, and then what they're motivated to do at what time of day. Because if they have a preference to do one session over the other at a certain time of day, then I'll, I'll obviously try and oblige just to keep their motivation high. Yeah. Um, another important point to add, I have two points to make here, so that should only take me about 30 or 40 minutes. <coughs> um, there's a, like two great examples for me are Alex Parker and Meredith Rue because they, they left CrossFit, sort of. I, I guess they, they keep the parts they really like, which is like strength training, gymnastics, and like work capacity stuff without having to do the really terrible, fast, painful things. And they train for running. So definitely I would take the principles of, 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 of that, they, that you'd be able to gain from the concurrent training literature <clears throat> and what they would recommend, but also just logic and talking with the individual themselves. So the ways that the way that we would like to, like very simply for a long time where Alex and Meredith they they were running three times a week and they ran the same days and they ran Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday mornings. And on Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday afternoons, they did upper body training only or upper body training and like cardio upper body. That's what it was. And the thing that they, you would see like even for Meredith uh, and, and Alex as well, that their, their upper body strength has not really diminished at all, even as they've run more. The thing the, where you would notice it more is a dose dependent manner in the lower body. So what the point of it is, is that um, the concurrent, like the interference effect is also contingent on the muscles you're using. So like if you, if you basically don't use, <laughs> can you get my charger? Tom's going to go away here in a second. <laughs> yeah. Like it basically, what it's saying is that like Meredith, for example, is still hitting very high numbers on her shoulder press or, uh, and her bench press and her push press even though but she's training for running right these are these are different muscle groups and alex for example set a personal best on like 10 minutes of burpee ring muscle ups which is entirely breathing an upper body and she like but her lower body capacity like strength and power in crossfit terms is it it's 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 noticeably less because that's the muscle group she uses 
So to go back to the point of what they made at the end here, a lot of it can could be literally just that there's so much fatigue in that area that that's the problem. That, that area just can't recover. But also there's obviously signaling effects because like your muscles get smaller, right? And they just change. Like they change on the inside. You can't see it. You can't see transition from fibers from one to another. Yeah, so that's an important point, right? It's, it's obviously total body. Uh, sorry, it's body part dependent as mm-hmm. well, right? The next part. Sorry, go ahead if you got something. No, I was just going to say, and it's obviously it's volume dependent too because if you're doing a, a strength session in the PM and say it's lower body, <clears throat> you're not going to go 4 by 10 back squat all at challenging yeah. loads and then go for a tough 5K the next morning. Yeah. Right? Like the organization of that has yeah. to be <laughs> appropriate, yeah. right? So you're... And for Alex now, the one thing we've tried to do, because she has to, is she's got to run four times a week to get up the amount of running she needs to do. Like So now she has, to, now there's one day we're going to experiment with doing squ- like some squatting in the evening on a Sunday, but her running in the morning on Sunday is going to be shorter in duration and the squatting volume is going to be extremely low. We're just going to see if we can do that because she wants to try to maintain her strength because she, she likes it, right? Because she's get, worked hard for it and so like, let's just see if she can hold on to it as best as possible. And the other part of it, which is like the very Jordan Peterson thing, is that the reason she wants to do it like that is because it's hard to do. That's why. It's hard to do that, to maintain those things and still try to work on everything else. It's hard. That's part of the purpose of it. It's like you could just let it relax and get better at running, but she doesn't want to take the easy way out. She wants to make it as hard as possible on herself. But those two are another great example too, because Mary is training for a half marathon, Alex training for a marathon. Those are differences differences in volume, and there's noticeable differences in their performance in the lower body. Meredith is not very much reduced whatsoever, and Alex has, uh, and it's just it's probably just a dose dependent manner. So there's just so much to recover from with running when you train for a marathon. The last point, which is a very common crossfit point and relevant to our friend Tom here, who. Um, who well i'll read it and tom will laugh because he'll be like i just did that so there's a point here when when they talk about combining combining strength and endurance training into one session and you do endurance training or do endurance work before you do strength training or power train or power performance whatever so this from this book called concurrent aerobic and strength training it's a fantastic book Uh, i think it's free online you just have to go download the pdf concurrent aerobic and strength training so there's a section here on post-activation potentiation. Again, talking about doing endurance training first. So uh, the quote is, notwithstanding the previous issues relating to strength performance, there is some suggestion that performing an endurance type stimulus can have a potentiating effect and thus a positive acute effect on strength performance. However, this has been reported almost exclusively in trained endurance athletes, i.e. CrossFitters. Consequently, it appears that those accustomed to endurance loading are perhaps more fatigue resistance to endurance exercise than strength trained individuals in the acute period following endurance stimulus. And basically what they get to, it's like it's a really, really good warm up for you, is what they're suggesting. And Tom, why don't you tell us how that Wadapalooza event went with the uh, toast of our rowing and snatching. This is a prime example of what you're talking about with Matt Frazier and doing endurance training and get better. And again, you can go back to our working to a max episode and laugh about how like do you think they bring rowers out onto the weightlifting platform at the olympics <laughs> <laughs> so they can hit their one rep maxes like that's like that's the kind of brain worms that you're dealing with but either way tell us your story about how that water yeah so what michael's referring right to is quote. i did the yeah, so team water palooza workout and it is 20 minutes it has a huh who's on your team oh it's who's uh, on your team, Tom? shout out, shout out to the boys uh, Nate Cordial here, Nate Dog. 
and Nate Portal, Nate Dog. <laughs> Nate Dog. Yeah, seriously. Bringing the dad power. And uh, yeah, seriously. anyway, so the workout <laughs> is max toes to bar, which yeah. is just a grip max test. And then you get on the row for 2K. And um, I didn't PR my 2K by any means. For time. 2K time. And then um, afterward. Yeah, it's hard. It was hard sure. by the end, yeah. I'm not saying it was easy, but yeah. it was... It's not uh, I wasn't going for my best time ever there. And then immediately after you have the remaining of the 20 minutes, so I had about 10 minutes and 30 seconds to do a max snatch. And uh, I actually PR'd my snatch. I didn't, I didn't PR within the time limit, so the last one didn't count. But I that's a very important point to make for Matt, and that's gonna. I beat him by one pound. I got him by one pound again. <laughs> oh, he already let me know that it wasn't within the time Max, limit. Max, uh, Matt actually made sure to point that out to someone else what? while I was talking about it. Well, I didn't really hit that time frame. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love it. So good. amazing. Great teammates. <laughs> oh, he was. Uh, I think he was upset because initially I sent him that I beat him by one to like two toes to bar and one pound on the snatch, and I think he was a yeah. bit uh, bothered by it. Yeah. <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, so after the time frame, I just felt really good. And I haven't tried 280 in a long time. And so I was like, you know, in this moment, I feel good. I should just go for it. So even though I ran out of time, I just tried it again and I ended up making it. And it felt actually fairly easy. I was kind of upset that I missed it in the time frame. Yeah. But. Yeah, so I think... No, I was just going to say, sometimes, yeah, doing, like, a really hard test like that, uh, and I think it's common with CrossFitters, they'll say, oh, I PR'd my clean jerk or this lift after doing some crazy open workout, the ones that'll be combination or something like this. You just feel really good. You feel um, as loosened up, or I don't don't really know how to explain it. Yeah, well, it's, it, there's a, I think there's a lot of things going on. Like, one, yeah, you are warm and you feel, like, fresh. You're extremely focused because it's obviously very important, right? So you're very motivated to perform yeah. in one thing. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of little a lot of little trend or lines of uh, thinking going on there, right? But, again, to kind of bring it back and, like, <laughs> a, common, a common statement I hear now, um, totally off-tangent from fitness, but is that Twitter is not the real world. And CrossFit's also not the real world. So the way that I would kind of think about this is like, you know, which I made the joke about to Jason, but again, you're setting personal, you're setting a personal best in the snatch, right? After doing 43 toes to bar from at the, at the zero minute mark to two minutes. And then you're rowing basically as fast as you can for six minutes and 40 something seconds from two minutes to eight something. And then within the next 15 minutes, you set a personal best in the snatch. Right, that's the context you're dealing with with CrossFit and concurrent trained athletes. That's who you're dealing with. These people, you have to think and to make the which is obvious to anybody. Ima- <laughs> just imagine someone in back of the weight, like the World Weightlifting Championships, going ham sandwich on a rower before their attempts, being like, "I gotta warm up." You're like, "Well, just go lift the bars." Like, "No, bro, I gotta do 500 repeats here." <laughs> What are you talking about? Base and jerk. What are you doing on the rower? There's yeah. <laughs> base again. He brings his skipping rope out. Dude, you only got 30 seconds. I got to knock out a couple reps. It's like, 
but it's it's just it's just the joke of how like that's a very common thing that that potentiation effect in CrossFit and for whatever reason it is if it's you're warm if it's your focus or you're just motivated because it's a competition that's a very real thing in CrossFit it's not a real thing in strength athletics and power performance that's that's not a thing that happens because their fatigue resistance is not the same um, because of their training history it's not but it's a very interesting point. To Thanks for tuning in. If you like the episode and know someone else that will, please share it with them as it helps to grow our reach. If you haven't done so already, please leave us a review wherever you listen. For questions about topics covered on the show or topics we haven't covered yet, send those questions to spiraloutpodcast at gmail.com. We do read the emails and have some topics that were submitted by listeners and we plan to cover them in the near future. You can follow at optimum underscore performance underscore training on Instagram to find out when new episodes are available. And last but not least, if you guys are in Calgary, come by and check out the gym. We offer individual design as well as personal training for those close by. If you live far, head over to optimumperformancecalgary.com to get information on remote coaching and athlete camps. Catch you guys in two weeks.